Happy long weekend to you. How are you? Good. Uh, we've got a lot to cover this morning, and I'm really, really excited to talk about uh, what we have the opportunity to talk about this morning. But before we do that, I just wanted to give you a really quick heads up on something that will be coming in your email box tomorrow. Uh, here's the deal. Over the last four years, you, you know um, that Bayview Glen has been growing like crazy. And one of the things that we have done in order to kind of facilitate that and support that is we went to three services this last ministry year, September through June. Everybody remember that? Nine, 10.30 and noon. Okay, we realized a couple of things about three services. One is it's not fun. Uh, by the time we leave here at 1.30 or 2 o'clock on, on a Sunday afternoon, uh, we are absolutely whipped and tired. Two, uh, everybody comes to the 10.30. There's like nine people in the nine o'clock. That's not why we do a service at nine so nine people could come. That's not true. I know you still come, right? And, there, and, and in the 12 o'clock, there's, you know, there's a lot of people in that one. It's good, but like, it's like 80% or something crazy comes to that 1030 service. And what we're having a tough time doing is getting all of the people at that kind of main service time that want to be here in this room. That was one thing. And the second thing is from our children's ministry perspective, because our, ch our church has grown by about three times over the last four years. Our children's ministry has grown by about five or six times. And so at that 1030 service, when all of our families are here and young children are here, not all, but most, uh, our children's ministry is absolutely busting at the seams and we have to close rooms down. So here's what we've decided to do. We've decided to retain two services going into the fall and not go back to three services. But, but, we need to know what the most convenient service times are for our congregation. And please don't think of it like, I would really like a 7 a.m. service because I've got an 8.30 tea time. That's not what this is for, okay? Not what this is for. What we need to figure out is, is what service times are best in order to bring our unchurched friends, people that don't know Jesus yet, best for you so that we could get a more even split over the course of two services. We've got a pretty good guess as to what times those will be, but, but we need your feedback to help us make that decision. We don't want to just guess. We want to involve all of us together in making that decision. So here's what you're going to see. Tomorrow in your email box is just a little link with the survey monkey thing in there, and you get to vote for service. I don't know, vote is not vote, but just tell us uh, what service times will be most uh, convenient for you and comfortable for you, especially when it comes to inviting an unchurched friend here to church. Uh, if you don't already get my emails, there's a little connect card in front of you, and you can uh, tick a box there that says, I'd like to receive Pastor Lucas's emails and you will get that email. And if you don't have a computer at all, then next Sunday, there will be a hard copy of that survey. You can complete that survey, let us know. And then as we ramp into the fall, we just wanna get a better balance so we actually have um, more seats than we have rear ends to put in them. You know what I mean? And enough parking spots and enough space in our children's ministry. Is everybody with me? Can you provide that feedback for us? Because that would, that would just be great so that we don't have to just guess. and Because, you know, I... I'd rather do a service at like Tuesday at like 10 a.m. That would be great for me, but probably not for you, okay? So we need your feedback and you'll get the opportunity to do that tomorrow and then this coming Sunday if uh, you don't have a computer. Sound good? Good. Uh, we come to a passage of the scripture this morning that I don't think belongs in the Bible. And I'm not saying that to be hyperbolic. I'm not saying that for shock and awe. I'm not saying it to overstate something. I really don't think it belongs there. You excited? Or panicked a little bit? <laughs> 
Let's pray and we'll get into it together. God, thanks for the opportunity to worship you this morning. Thank you for Andy and the team and the way they have led us and prepared our hearts to hear from you today, God. Uh, in this unique passage and in this kind of unique nature of what we're talking about this morning, uh, would you remind us of your goodness, your grace, your sovereignty, your providence, and the way nothing, nothing, nothing ever slips through your providential fingers, especially, especially the word of God in the Bible. In the name of Christ, the people of God together said, amen. If you have your Bibles, and I really hope you do this morning, open them up to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We'll be in the very last verse of John chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you. Uh, The scripture, as always, is going to be up here on the screens with me, and you can read along there. But if you have a Bible, I'd really like you to to open it up to John chapter 7, verse 53. That's where we left off last week. We covered verses 25 through 52. We're going to pick it up here in verse 53, and it's important, again, that you've got the text in front of you because I got a couple of questions for you here. So John chapter seven, verse 53 reads this way. It says, they each went to his own house. Remember that Jesus was at the feast of weeks, the feast of tabernacles, the feast of booths. It's called many different things, but he was there in Jerusalem. And at the end of chapter seven, verse 52, that concludes, that time kind of concludes. And John says this, they each went to his own house. You'll see in a minute, this actually isn't John writing. That's my opinion anyway. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. John chapter 7, verse 53 through John chapter 8, verse 11, what we just read constitutes what's called a pericope. It's a fancy word for paragraph or section. It's a section of the scriptures and Bible scholars call it a pericope. And it is my opinion and the opinion of many modern scholars that that particular pericope, John chapter 7, verse 53 through John chapter 8, verse 11, does not actually belong in the Bible. I want to quote a couple of modern scholars, and these are very conservative scholars who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, and they believe in the authority of Scripture. These are not liberal theologians. These are very conservative theologians who who are commenting on this pericope, John chapter 7, verse 53, through John chapter 8, verse 11. D.A. Carson, I start with a Canadian scholar. Did you catch that? That's beside the point. A Canadian scholar writes this. He said, despite the best efforts to prove this narrative was originally part of John gospel, the evidence is against them. And modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text or to relegate it to a footnote. So here's my question. For those of you who have your Bible open, do you see a little footnote in your Bible that says, this passage was not in the earliest manuscripts? Does anybody see that? Raise your hand if you see that. 
Okay, good, good. Okay, so they've relegated it to a footnote, or maybe there's a footnote at the bottom that says, this passage was not in the earliest manuscripts. This is what the NIV and the RSV translation of the scripture do. We'll talk about it here in a minute. Let's keep going with another scholar, Bruce Metzger, very conservative guy, says the evidence for the non-Johannine, that means not John, origin of the pericope, what we just read, of the adulteress is overwhelming. The evidence for the non-Johannine origin is overwhelming. Leon Morris wrote this. Next slide, please. The textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the gospel. Andreas Kostenberger, let's just keep going. Next one. This represents overwhelming evidence that the section is non-Johannine. Herman Ritterboss, the evidence points to an unstable tradition that was not originally part of an ecclesiastically accepted text. Modern scholar after modern scholar and ancient scholar, as you'll see in a minute, after ancient scholar would say that this particular section of the scripture does not belong in the Bible. It was not originally part of John's gospel. Now, interestingly enough, these uh, modern scholars that just said that it doesn't belong in the scripture, they would also say it very likely happened. It very likely happened. It's got all the marks of authenticity in terms of the historical or the historicity of the text. In other words, this likely happened. This conversation between Jesus and this woman caught in adultery likely happened. It just doesn't belong in John's gospel. And they cite four reasons why. And here's the four. I'm going to call them the four knots this morning. The four knots. So John chapter 7 verse 53 through 8 verse 11 is not in the earliest manuscripts. You'll need to know this here for in a little bit. So remember that MSS stands for manuscripts. It's not in the earliest manuscripts. Remember early on in our series in the book of John, we talked about the fact that we've got a manuscript from the very early second century. We're talking about 120 AD, maybe even earlier than that. This section of the scripture, John 7 verse 53 through 811, does not show up in manuscripts until the fifth century. So our earliest manuscripts does not, do not include this paragraph or section. Second, it's not quoted by the church fathers until the 10th century. Like nobody in the early church. Again, we talked about modern scholars just now. So the ancient scholars, the ancient church fathers, the ancient theologians don't comment on this text at all until the 10th century. Third, it's not Johannine language. So when you get to John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11, and you read it, if you were reading it in the original Greek, you would go, what in the world? Who is talking here? Like there's some idioms and phrases and language here that's going, this is not John. I've been reading John up to this point. This ain't him. It would be like this. If you had a friend that was born and raised in North Bay, all right, 60 years living in North Bay, and you told me the other day, I talked to my friend who spent his entire life in North Bay, and you know what he said to me? He said this, I tell you what, man, this summer has been so hot, I've been sweating like a couple of rats wrestling in a wool sock. What would I say to you? That ain't a guy from North Bay, right? That certainly does not sound like North Bay. It's that stark of a contrast when you get to this section. It does not sound like John. And the fourth knot here is it's just not comfy where it is. This particular section of scripture just isn't comfy. If you remove 753 through 811 from the book of John, the book of John reads far smoother. 
I mean, it just, it is just smooth as butter, man. As, 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 as a modern pop song said, smoother than a fresh jar of Skippy. So it's just smooth. And in fact, when the, when the text, when the pericope uh, finally shows up in manuscripts in the fifth century, nobody really knows where to put it. This section shows up a couple of different places in John, not just here where we've got it. And it actually shows up in Luke. Like nobody's really sure where to put it. It's just not comfy where it's at. Listen, this does not mean it didn't happen. It likely happened. And we can learn a lot about the grace of God from this particular text of scripture because it's consistent with who we know Jesus to be. Did you not just read it? We know Jesus to be that guy. But it's just, it just doesn't belong in the Bible. It's not Johannine. So <laughs> here's the question that we're going to ask this morning and allow this particular section of scripture, or not really section of scripture, section of, you know, that's in there. Um, we're going to allow us to take it, take, allow it to take us down a little bit of a rabbit hole this morning. You ready to go with me? Here's our question. Can we trust the Bible? Do you, do you understand where I'm asking this question from? If we're reading a Bible and, and we look at it and textual criticism, that's what we call the science of putting the text together over time. And modern scholars and ancient scholars and all of everybody would say, it really doesn't belong in there. Then can I actually trust this book that I'm holding in my hand? Nod your head if you understand why I'm asking this question. This is the rabbit hole we are going to allow this passage to take us down this morning. And I want to ask the question, can we trust the Bible? And I want to talk to three different people this morning. First, I want to talk to skeptics. Because there's some skeptics in the room and you're going, you know what? I don't think this is an authentic uh, text. I don't think it's historically verifiable. I don't think it's something that can be trusted. It certainly doesn't have any authority. I want to prove to you this morning that it 100% absolutely does. Second, I want to talk to newer believers in the room. Some of you are maybe newer Christians in the room and you don't know how we got our Bible or where it came from, or what it really is, or how we decided what goes in there and what doesn't go in there. You don't know any of that stuff. And so I want to affirm for you that the book that you hold in your hands is the very words of God. Now that's pretty cool, isn't it? That's pretty cool. And for those of you who may have been walking with Jesus for a long time, a lot of what I'm going to say this morning, you probably already know. But we come to church a lot and we hear things we already know, don't we? So my encouragement, my exhortation would be at the conclusion of this time today, at the conclusion of our sermon, we would respond to a God who was under no obligation or compulsion to reveal himself to us, but he did in and through his son, Jesus Christ. And, and now we have a book recorded, the best-selling book of all time, by the way, for all time in front of us where we can get to know a God who loves us, has a plan for us and for the redemption of all things. So those are three different people I want to talk to. And here's our big question. Can we trust the Bible? Let's start here with, with uh, another question. Uh, what is the Bible anyway? What, what do we really have in our hands? Uh, the Bible, this word here, the Bible, actually comes from a Latin word. And the Latin word is not singular. It's plural. And it literally means the books. So when we talk about the Bible as a singular thing, yes, it's a singular thing, but maybe more accurately, it's a plural thing. There are 66 books 
in the Bible. 37 in the Old Testament. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. And whatever 66 minus 37 is in the New Testament. 29, by the way. The Bible is divided into two parts. I just mentioned them. The Old Testament and the New Testament. Dave mentioned covenants a minute ago. That word testament is another word for covenant. So the first 37 books of the Bible represent God's old covenant. That is his covenant with Abraham. His covenant with Moses. His covenant even with Adam. And then the New Testament or the New Covenant, those 29 books in the New Covenant, represents the New Covenant that he made in and through Christ that we just celebrated with communion and the church that developed subsequently out of that New Covenant that God fulfilled in Christ. And those 66 books, now listen to this, this will blow your mind if you don't know this, those 66 books were written over the course of more than a thousand years. 40 different authors, three different continents. They were written by statesmen and kings and tax collectors and doctors. They were uh, historical accounts. They, were, they, they record censuses or sensi. I don't know what the plural of census is, but that's beside the point. They, recover, they, they cover architectural designs. They cover love letters. They cover uh, letters to the church. They cover very systematic looks at all of what theology is. And as a matter of fact, those 66 books in the uh, Old and New Testament cover very, very specific designs on how to build a big boat. They cover a lot of different stuff. And those 66 books together are the Bible. So when I say the Bible this morning or the scripture, I am talking about those 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, the Old and New Covenants. Question number two is simply this. How did we get the Bible? How did we, how did we get the Bible? Like, where did it actually come from? So I want to talk about two things. Again, I want to talk about the Old Covenant, or the Old Testament first, and then the New Testament. By the time Jesus shows up on the scene in the first century, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was already codified and canonized and recognized by all of the nation of Israel as God's words to them. It was the prophets, it was the Psalms, it was the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And when Jesus shows up in the first century and begins to introduce himself and his ministry and his life purpose, he quotes the Old Testament, and this is a little bit of an odd thing to say about Jesus, but I'm going to say it anyway. He quotes the Old Testament ad nauseum, like he quotes that thing up one side and down the other. He quotes it from tip to tail. In fact, I think there are only three books of the Old Testament that Jesus does not quote. I mean, it was already affirmed, already codified, already canonized as God's word to his people. Well, what about the New Testament? That, that's, that's a different question because the New Testament didn't show up until Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. And his apostles and disciples begin to write things down, like the book of John that we've been studying. They begin to write letters to other churches. John would eventually write a book called Revelation, where God gives him a vision for the future, and everybody starts to write this down. So where did that come from? How did we get that, the New Testament. So let's talk about 
about the New Testament. There's a four-step process by which we have what we have in front of us, and we call it the New Testament, and John is in the New Testament. It's a very simplified four-step process, but if you're taking notes, it is important to jot these things down. The four-step process by which we have the New Testament in front of us. The first is this. Uh, it, It begins with inspiration. God inspired men to write these things down, whatever it is that they were writing down. He inspired biographies of the life of Christ. Those are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He inspired systematic looks at theology and who God is and what his plans are. It's books like Romans and Hebrews. He inspired general letters to kind of any Christians. That's books like uh, Ephesians and James. He inspired really specific books to really specific churches, letters like like 1st and 2nd Corinthians. He inspired prophecy, books like Revelation. He inspired that stuff. The, the other word that theologians use for this first step in the process is revelation. God reveals himself to his people and they write it down. Check this out. This does not mean that he dictated it and they wrote it down word for word. This does not mean that he somehow supernaturally took control of their hand and all of a sudden they're writing something down. What it means is he breathed out his message and men recorded it and wrote it down. Scripture claims this about itself in 2 Timothy 3.16. It says that all scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God. This is this doctrine of inspiration. 2 Peter uh, chapter 1 says the same thing. Men spoke from God, talking about the scriptures. Men spoke from God or wrote down from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, God inspired this book to be written down. And some of you might be thinking, like, how do we even know that? Other than the fact that scripture, the Bible, claims that about itself, that it is inspired by God, it is God's revelation to man. How else would we know that? Well, I'll tell you a couple of things. First, the fulfillment of prophecy. Go read the Old Testament and the New Testament and look at all the prophecy that has been fulfilled over time that can only come from a divine being. Second is consistency, consistency with things like archaeology and science and history. The more we learn about archaeology, the more we learn about history, the more we learn about science, the more we look at the Bible and go, the Bible already knew that. That is strange. That's that's a strange coincidence, isn't it, that the Bible already knew that? Yes, because it was inspired by God. The third reason that we know that the scripture is inspired is because of its efficacy and the ways that it's had a, 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 an impact on mankind for now 3,000 years, really. And finally, we know that the Bible is inspired even from external evidence because of its survival. Voltaire actually said that, uh, do you guys know who Voltaire is? French philosopher guy? Okay, he, he said that um, Christianity and the Bible would disappear completely from the earth, be completely eradicated, and no one would even remember it within 100 years of his death. He said that. And then within 50 years of his death, they had converted his house into a printing press for Bibles, which is fascinating to me, and it's really kind of ironic and funny. The Bible has survived because it's the very inspired words of God. And so once the Bible has been inspired, the second step in this process here is the transmission. The transmission. So what we have currently uh, in terms of the original manuscripts of the, of the scripture, the, 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 the Greek manuscripts, for the New Testament, the Hebrew manuscripts for the Old Testament, we do not have what's called the original autographs. 
We do not have anything that John or James or Paul or Peter wrote with their own hand. What we have is copies. And those copies have been transmitted over time meticulously by scribes. And some of us might be thinking, okay, wait a minute. We don't have any of the original copies of the Bible? No, we don't. So does that mean it's not reliable? Does that mean that things get lost in transmission sometimes? Does that, th- that mean that things have been changed or morphed over time? I want to prove to you that that's not the case, that the uh, texts that we have, the manuscripts, remember, MSS that we have, are very reliable, extraordinarily reliable, especially when, it's compared, when they're compared to other texts of antiquity. So let's do that. Let's compare these things, shall we? Uh, take a look up here on the screen. What we have uh, to start with, oh, sorry. I'll, I'll just make this comment real quick. Uh, Dan Brown, you guys know Dan Brown who wrote the Da Vinci Code? Look what Dan Brown says about transmission. He says that the manuscripts that we have are nothing but old stories fabricated by man and then exaggerated over time. Really? Really, the miracles of the Bible, the New Testament, is stories by man exaggerated over time. I want to prove Dan Brown wrong in about seven minutes here. It's not that difficult. Let's take a look at this chart. We're going to look at other texts of antiquity written by these guys. Have you heard of any of these guys? Homer, Herodotus, Sophocles, Plato, Caesar. We've heard of these guys, right? They've written books as well. And these guys wrote in these centuries. They wrote in the 9th century, 5th century, 5th century, 4th century, and 1st century B.C. They would be kind of like um, text com- in common with the Bible in terms of when they were written. They were written before Jesus came around, but these guys wrote on these dates. The gap between Homer's date of when he wrote and the manuscript that we have, we don't have Homer's original copy. Homer doesn't write something and sign at the end, love Homer. We don't have that. We have copies of what he wrote. And the gap between when he wrote and our earliest manuscript is 400 years. Is everybody with me on that? 400 years. He wrote in the ninth century BC. The earliest copy of his stuff that we have was 400 BC. The gap is 400 years. Herodotus, check this out. He wrote in the 5th century BC. We don't have anything of his until the 10th century. That's 1,350 years between when he wrote and the earliest manuscript. You tracking with me? Everybody tracking with me? I hope so. Sophocles, 5th century BC. 3rd century BC is when we have his manuscript. That's a gap of 200 years. Plato wrote in the 4th century BC. We don't have anything of his stuff. You've heard of Plato. Until 895 AD now. AD. That's a gap of 1,300 years. Caesar wrote in the 1st century BC. We don't have any of his stuff until the 9th century. 950 year gap between when they wrote and our earliest manuscript. Now watch this for the New Testament. The New Testament was written in the first century AD. Our earliest manuscript conservatively, conservatively shows up in 130 AD. That's a gap of 40 years. It's a gap of 40 years. So let's erase all this confusion. We're gonna move this over here. Homer, 400-year gap. Herodotus, 1350. You can see them. I don't need to read them all the way down. And there's a 40-year gap between when the New Testament was written and our earliest manuscripts. And that's a conservative estimate. And we might ask the question, okay, 
So how many manuscripts do we actually have? I mean, these guys, we would go to school and everybody would teach us, Homer, Herodotus, Sophocles, Plato, that they were real people who really wrote and we really studied them and we really talk about them and nobody questions their authenticity, but everybody questions the authenticity of the New Testament. For Homer, check this out. This is how many manuscripts we have. We have 643. For Herodotus, we've only got eight, eight manuscripts. Eight, not original, copies. And there's a 1,350-year gap between when he wrote and our earliest manuscript. For Sophocles, we've got 100. For Plato, we've got seven. And for Caesar, we've got 10. For the New Testament, we might want 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. We don't. We have 5,700 manuscripts of the New Testament. 5,700. And that's just Greek. If you count Latin, it's upwards of 24,000 manuscripts. And of those manuscripts, 97 to 99% of what we have is accurate within itself, is consistent within itself. It has small stuff that scholars call textual variants. It's like, is that a semicolon or a colon? We're not really sure. Small stuff. But the big stuff is consistent among those 5,700 manuscripts. One liberal scholar would write this, that the New Testament, Testament is unsurpassed, unsurpassed in terms, of its, in terms of its authenticity as compared to other texts of antiquity. In other words, people would question that the transmission of scripture over time and the copies that were made of the Bible over time, it got exaggerated over time and things blew up over time and it, you know people started to believe things that the first century church didn't believe. It's just not defensible from history. It's a silly argument that fiction writers like Dan Brown make and I just proved him wrong, but that's beside the point. So that's the second step in how we got our Bible, transmission. The third step is what's called canonization. That means that the early church got together and as these gospels were published and began to be copied and read in all the churches and as the letters of, to the churches began to be published and, uh, to all of the churches and read among all the churches, the first church in the first century and the second century and third century got together and said, okay, what really belongs here? What's really inspired by God? Now, what, what do we really want to include in this book called, they didn't call it the Bible at the time, but what we have is the Bible. What do we really want to include and what do we want to exclude? And this is a simplified way to say it, but I, they ask three critical questions when it comes to what do we include in this new covenant, the recording of God's new covenant that we now call the New Testament. And the first question they asked was the question of apostolicity. It's a fancy way to say, is this connected with an apostle? Did a disciple of Jesus write this text? John wrote that text. James, brother of Jesus, wrote that text. Paul, who was an apostle, wrote the text or wrote the uh, letters in the New Testament. Many of them, not all of them, many of them. Is it connected to an apostle? Books like Mark are not written by an apostle, but a close friend. And everybody knew that Mark and Peter were buddies. Luke was not written by an apostle, but we know that he uh, did extensive research and the first church knew that he did extensive research and knew disciples really, really well. And he recorded that book. And so once the question of apostolicity was answered, is this connected with one of Jesus' original 12 followers? The second question was this, orthodoxy. Is this consistent with the Old Testament? There's stuff in what's called the... Um, 
the Apocrypha. It's the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of, you know, other books that aren't included in the canon. And some of them get really wacky. It's like when Jesus was 10 years old, he used to have a really good time and turn his friends into frogs. It's like, well, that doesn't sound right. (laughs) That doesn't sound right according to the Old Testament. That doesn't sound right according to the New Testament. That doesn't sound right according to what the apostles have always taught. So orthodoxy, does it represent right thinking? Is it connected with an apostle? Does it represent right thinking? And was it accepted in the early church? Did the early church in general accept this text as inspired words from God? And once those questions were answered, they would say, yes, we are going to include this in what's called the canon. The canon simply means rule or metric. Once they measured those texts against uh, this metric of apostolicity, orthodoxy, and acceptance, they included them in uh, what's called the canon or the New Testament. Now, there'll be a lot of scholars out there that say, yeah, and that didn't happen until like the 10th century or 12th century, and there were old white men. I've actually heard people say that, which is offensive in a lot of different ways, but there were old white men that wrote this stuff down? Really, really. Because the earliest canon we have is the Muratorian canon. It was published in 170 AD, and it includes every biblical book that you have in front of you right now, except for Hebrews, James, and 3 John. Except for Hebrews, James, and 3 John. So the first canon included the vast majority of what we have in terms of the new covenant. It was very, very early on when the disciples and the early church decided upon this book is from God. It's inspired by God. And then they began to transmit it over time and, and decided upon a canon. And the final step in this process is not really the process by how we get our Bible, but, but it's interpretation. And, and this is the funny thing is, uh, everybody wants to call this into question. Is this book really inspired? Or people want to call this into question. It, you know, Dan Brown, guys like Dan Brown and others, was it really transmitted accurately over time? Or canonization, should there be other stuff that's included in there? Or are there things included in there that shouldn't be included in there? Here's where we really have our problem. I'll be honest, it's right here. when we read the Bible and interpret it and want to apply it to our lives, we mess up interpretation all the time. Soren Kierkegaard once said, uh, Christians can be swindlers and they, uh, they don't interpret the Bible correctly because they know when they do, they have to apply it to their lives. (laughs) Mark Twain actually said this, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that give me a problem. It's the problem. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand that give me a problem. So really, these things are accurate. These things are time-tested. These things we know. But in terms of interpretation, that's where we really struggle. So we've got four minutes remaining here, and I want to close by affirming what's called biblical inerrancy. Biblical inerrancy. That is to say that the scriptures in their original autographs In the original text, see our definition of inerrancy takes into account some of these things that may have slipped in over time that we know now shouldn't be there. But the scripture and their original autographs are inspired, authoritative, and without error. And I want to point out five things that we know about the Bible, this book that we hold in our hand. And the first is this. The Bible is eternal. 
The Bible is eternal. Isaiah 40, chapter eight says, the word of the Lord stands forever. Matthew chapter five, verse 18, one of my favorite passages in the scripture, just because I love to say these words, is that Jesus says, I tell you the truth, not a jot or a tittle will disappear from the law until it's fulfilled in its entirety. A jot is where we get our modern word iota from, and it's the smallest Hebrew letter. A tittle is like this teeny tiny little punctuation point, really, really small, and you have to say it like that, small in the scripture. And Jesus says, not even the smallest part of the Hebrew language will disappear from the word and disappear from the law until it's fulfilled and it's entirely. In modern language, it would be like saying this, not the dot of an I or the cross of a T will disappear from the law until it's fulfilled in its entirety. The word of God, the Bible is eternal. The word of God is inspired. We've already quoted 2 Peter 1.21 and 2 Timothy 3.16. That is to say that it was written down by men but inspired by God. Now check that out. That should floor us if we really think about it. The words of the living God to us. What you hold in your hand is inspired. The word of God is complete. The word of God is complete. The the reformers would call this the sufficiency of scripture. Psalm 19 talks about it. 2 Timothy 3.15 talks about it. You can jot those verses down and look them up later if you'd like to. The word of God is complete. That is to say that when when all things come to an end or when you die and go, you know, stand before God or whatever, he's not gonna go, oh my gosh, I forgot to include this one thing. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Like it is complete. It is sufficient. It is everything we need in order to know God in order to know salvation. It's everything we need for life and godliness. It is sufficient and complete. The word of God is, the Bible is relevant. Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It can pierce and divide soul and spirit and joints and marrow and cut down and judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That isn't just for 2,000 years ago. That is for today. It is relevant in your everyday life because it is the very word of God reliably transmitted so that you hold it in your hands today. And finally, I just want to simply answer our question that we started with. Can we trust the Bible? The word of God is absolutely trustworthy. The word of God is trustworthy. Psalm 119, 160 would affirm it and Jesus in John 17 would affirm it and say that your word is what? Truth. It is trustworthy. It is without error in the original autographs and it is relevant for life and faith and community and each and everything that we face today. That particular section, John chapter seven, verse 53 through 811, probably happened. There's a lot for us to learn from it. Go home and read it. It it, it happened, it happened. It just doesn't belong in the scripture But the reason that we have to worship today, the reason that we have to respond to God and call out to him and say, you are holy, you are in control, you are sovereign, is because what we have in front of us is a reliable, verifiable, historical book that will cut down to the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I've heard it said this way. Everybody wants to read the Bible, but the Bible is the only book that can read you. (laughs) Let's close in prayer. God, thank you for the opportunity to talk about how reliable these 66 books really are from a historical perspective, from a spiritual perspective, from a faith and family perspective. We are grateful, God, that you were under no obligation or compulsion to reveal yourself to us, and yet you did so. 
through your son Jesus and through your word, the scriptures that have survived over time because of your sovereign hand and control. Teach us, God, to love your word, to read your word, to know your word, to study your word so that it changes us from the inside out. In the name of Christ, the people of God together said, amen. Let's stand.